I'm not even sure if sponsoring your own podcast is a thing, but we're going to give it a go for the remainder of this series because She Can, She Did has just launched the UK's first ever benefits programme curated for and by self-employed women in the UK. And so I wanted to use this opportunity to tell you all a little bit about it. The new She Can, She Did Benefits programme provides all self-employed women, female founders and freelancers with access to the health and financial benefits that come hand in hand with a corporate career, like pensions, health insurance, gym memberships, eye care, etc, etc, plus a whole host of additional fashion, beauty, well-being, parenthood and lifestyle incentives too, with over 60 plus brands on board and counting, including the likes of Pure Gym, Hiscox, Penfold and Vision. Express on the more traditional benefits front, to the likes of Esper, Bloom and Wild, Higher Street, to Hello Fresh and Oh Mama on the ultimate rewards front. For just £5.99 per month, you will gain access to a whole host of exclusive benefits and rewards to support both your business and your life, which, let's face it, will become all the more important as we all try and navigate the uncertainty that the coming months present. Plus, all members benefit from weekly online events with industry experts at no extra cost too, along with many, many more perks of the programme. Visit shecanshedid.com for more details if you're interested, or of course, feel free to just click on the link in this episode's show notes. I feel like Cheryl when I say the next bit, but here goes. She can, she did. Your resilience rewarded. everyone and welcome back to the She Can, She Did podcast, aka the podcast that shares the honest realities of what female business owners in the UK push through behind the scenes. Warts and all, of course, to not just launch, but run, grow and sustain their businesses to date. If we haven't met yet, I'm Fee and I'm the founder of She Can, She Did, slash the one asking the questions throughout this chat. Now, this week's episode is with Benedicta Banger, founder of Blackbase App, the shopping app that supports high-quality black-owned products that she launched on Black Pound Day in June of 2020, after months and months of iterations, tweaks and testing, that is. Having gained extensive press coverage on and in the likes of Stylist, Mary Claire, Sky News and the BBC since launching, I chatted to Benedicta a few weeks ago, the day after we launched the Benefits programme in fact, so oh my goodness I could relate to so so much of this chat, to discuss her self-funded business journey so far. From how she built the app without developers and has learnt to embrace the curveballs and opportunities that running a business can throw your way thereafter, why she's so passionate about reminding people that the only reality we can truly trust online is our own, to her advice on dealing with online abuse, having experienced it herself in the aftermath of an interview on Sky News. Benedicta's story is yet another example of what truly goes on behind the scenes to launch and grow a sustainable business and for that reason I could not have loved chatting to her and recording this episode more. As always I hope you enjoy it. So Benedicta I, I'm genuinely so looking forward to this interview I feel like we're going to have a really good chat but to just set the scene for everyone listening, please can you tell us what your business is all about in your very own words and we'll go from there. Okay, so I'm Benedicta and my business is Blackbase. 
Blackface is a shopping app, which is a curated marketplace with really high quality black owned brands by black women. And we have this growing community of people that want to support these black owned brands to grow. And yeah, that's the app. Amazing. So let's go right back to the very beginning. Where did this idea come from? Can you pinpoint a moment where it popped into your head or was it quite a slow burning kind of idea, I suppose? Yeah, I don't know if I can pinpoint a moment as such. So I think I'm always kind of working on some type of project. And I'd come to the end of my last one and I'd just given myself time to sit and think about what I was going to do next. So I was around a few different people and I kind of noticed that actually black women were starting to create really high quality, nice products. And then through a need of my own, in the area that I live, I was finding that if I want, say, makeup products, if I go to my local high street, no chance you're going to get that or like hair products or to my local department store. So then I was just thinking, okay, I don't really always want to travel far and wide to go and get the products that I need. So maybe I could create something around that. And then I was looking into what other black owned brands are out there and discovering that actually they weren't that visible. So this was all pre the Black Lives Matter movement protests and all that activity that happened after that. So discovering that Black-owned brands weren't really discoverable when I go online, they weren't really being stocked in high street shops. And then also discovering in the process that Black-owned businesses were the least funded group in business. So I took a look at all those three things and then just decided I was going to build what I would call a lifestyle app at the time, but I needed so much content for it to work. And then through doing market research is how I started to create more of a directory. But now Blackbase is a shopping app. So in a long-winded way, there isn't one thing. It's kind of a journey. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like even that statement that you've just made, I'm going to nitpick and pick it apart because there's so many different bits in that. So even the directory, am I right in thinking then that's how you started? It started as a directory of Black. Yeah. Started as a directory, and that was like last year in June. So I had this lifestyle app, what I'm calling the lifestyle app that I built. And I was showing people, talking to them about how they would use it, what they would want to see, et cetera, et cetera. And then through that feedback, somebody said, Well, why don't you just narrow it down and do a directory, see if people will use it? And then I did that, and people were using it. And then we got to growing because of the Black Lives Matter movement protests and the Blackout Tuesday that happened and all that activity that happened after that. And I just kind of got feedback and could see that actually having a directory wasn't the best value because people were having to go to multiple brands to shop, which isn't a great shopping experience. So then I brought the shopping cart into the app, which created the shopping app that is there today. Amazing. So yeah, so loads of iterations. And even within those three main iterations, loads of iterations within the app itself. Absolutely. Let's go back a few steps. Though. What were you doing beforehand? Because saying I made this app, to me, that's like, whoa, that's a lot of work. And I want to know what you were doing beforehand that yeah. made you firstly, was it a comfortable fit? Did it feel quite natural to create an app or, you know? 
So let me talk about that. So I work in technology. I'm what's called a product manager. So basically I take ideas that people have for creating technology all the way from idea to actually giving you a system that works. So had you consulted with me, Fiona, we wouldn't have had issues with the launch. Oh, no. <laughs> so basically I do that day to day. And so for me, again, in that day-to-day role, I was kind of looking for role models, black female role models for my next up level. And I couldn't see any, which is where I came up with this lifestyle app to showcase things black women were doing. So I have the background and then also I have some coding knowledge. And then last year I spent an intensive six months doing a technology program. And so I had the skills to do it basically. Yeah. It's part of what I also do in my nine to five. Are you still in that nine to five? Uh, I'm on furlough. I have been on furlough since very early on. Wow. Okay. I mean, we'll come on to that because I'm sure that has been a whole journey in itself. But how did you get the word out there in terms of, I'm always really interested in marketing. And like you said, a lifestyle app, when it started as a directory, it still needs a lot of content on there. And that Mm -hmm. content takes time. It takes a lot of people coming together to support it, et cetera, et cetera. So when it was this idea, how did you go about getting out there, gaining that support and, and I suppose getting the momentum going? So I think, yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I would also like to know, (laughs) it would make my life so much easier. I'll, I'll let you know how I did it. But I think for people listening, I think it's a question that we almost like obsess over, but it's not that important. The important thing is to start and then keep going. So in the very beginning, if I think about who was going into the app versus who's going into the app now, for example. So in the very beginning, it was people I knew. So when people talk about you use your network whenever you're starting, it genuinely is the way you start because they're the most receptive people to you at the time. But the thing that I want to clarify around that, because people are very vague around that, your network doesn't have to be all people that you've been in long-standing relationships with because that's where you get stuck in that you're marketing to your friends and family who aren't necessarily your ideal client so it was more building relationships with people genuine relationships with people that I thought would be my ideal customer within the app so that's how it started did you reach out to them online? Is this at networking events? How did you it was get a mixture online networking events, communities that I became part of, like this tech program that I'm talking about? There was a hundred women as part of that tech program. So yeah, there was a good sized audience for me to speak to and make connections and, and talk to people about what I was thinking, people that didn't know me, that didn't have an interest in having to, I guess, flatter me if that makes sense. Yeah. And also like networking at conferences pre-COVID, Twitter is always a good place. So loads of different things. So initially I had probably like, I think I made a list of maybe around 20 people that I was speaking to and just gathering different thoughts and ideas about what they thought. And because what I was doing, and I still believe even now, I don't know of any apps in this space. It's so new that 
I had to create it to show people what I was talking about because it, it didn't make sense to talk from a theoretical view. So I had to create the prototype and actually either send people videos of the prototype working or show them on my phone what I was talking about so they could understand and see what I was talking about. Which is a challenge to overcome in itself, I would say, because even those prototypes cost money to make. Yes. So, you know, how did you go about funding that, I suppose? So everything that I've done has been self-funded. And I, as I said, I have the skills. There are loads of tools out there that you can use to create a prototype. And also even more rudimental, if that's the word. We'll roll with it. Well, let's just say it is the word or whatever. You can actually use pen and paper to prototype because a prototype essentially is just taking your idea from your head and putting it on paper. And if you can put it in a format that simulates whether it's a desktop application or it's a mobile application, whatever it is, or even if it was a physical product, if you can actually do like Mr. Art Attack and just produce the thing that is in your head, that's taking it a step further. So for me, that was relatively simple to do and it didn't have to cost me because I I wasn't employing somebody else to do it. And I guess for a lot of people, that's where the cost comes in when you have to hire somebody. And that's where the learning curve also comes in because then you have to translate what's in your head and get that other person to understand and produce exactly what's in your head without getting into loads of expensive like mistakes yeah. which I'm sure you'll know from your experience do you know what I feel like in the past maybe eight weeks there was about a month ago a period where messy mistakes but god you just learn so much it's such a strange journey but like it's just bonkers how much you can learn yeah and the beauty of that is like now you know so you are so much further than somebody that's never taken their idea that's still toying around with the fear that's still thinking oh my god if it costs me sometimes you have to kind of draw the line so if I was hiring somebody let's say I didn't have the skills and I needed somebody to do this then you have to work out in your mind what's a reasonable amount of money to lose if this doesn't work. Because I think that's always the fear that's stopping people from moving on. So you have to list out all your objections to yourself Mm -hmm. and address each and every single one of them. And then just do it because you're never going to be 100% prepared. You're never going to know everything. And sometimes you just need to learn. And I think that's one of our biggest lessons in COVID Forget what you know and learn how to adapt and learn how to go with the flow, learn how to think differently, learn how to be more resilient and and just keep going. 100%. I couldn't agree more. And we'll come on to COVID, I think. But yeah, I just echo all of that. I think it's just been the biggest learning journey for all of us. And it's just, to me, that is so exciting when we look back on this in hindsight. I studied history and politics at uni and I'm already thinking 20 years ahead. All of those university students are going to have questions about how conversations changed and the lessons we took from this and how thinking evolved and all of that just because of this year and we're living through it. I think when we're in it, you know, you can kind of lose sight of that. This is such a monumental chapter. And to be a business owner in this year what a story, what like an opportunity to learn because it's absolutely bonkers. 
but no, let's go back. So in terms of the, so we're still going with the momentum. Do you remember a point where you thought this is coming together? You know, how quickly did it take to kind of go from gaining that support and like winning people over with the prototypes to having it there and thinking like this has legs? So in my head, it always has legs, right? So for me, it's more moments. And again, for me, it's one of those questions that I think we think it's one thing that makes it happen. And it actually isn't in my experience. And it's been loads of little different things. For example, very early on, launching the actual app on Twitter and having loads of retweets compared to the audience size that I had, having people sharing and people like joining, create, uh, looking at the app, et cetera, et cetera, to launching the actual shopping app on Sky News and having 310,000 views on my interview, loads of shares, lots of hateration, lots of app signups, to having loads of press following that, to now having a lot of people coming into the app without me necessarily always going out and doing something, which wasn't the case. And I remember very early days going to somebody, if I don't go out and do something, whether it be tweet, direct approach, nobody's coming into the app. So that's very different. And I always wanted to be in that place where I'd check the numbers and I'd see actually I don't even know who you are, but thank you for coming to the app. So it's loads of little different things that happen along the way and sticking along, even when you're not seeing the results that you're expecting to see, sticking along and and just making it happen. Absolutely. This is the whole point of this podcast and why I launched You Cash did in the first place is that it never is an overnight success is still that quote about it taking 10 years. It never is as simple as it looks. And there's always so much work going on behind the scenes. And you just said something that's so important about the whole process is that it's the best business owners out there and the ones that are going to succeed are the ones that can hold their nerve when the traction isn't there, Yeah. when people aren't clapping and you're just working you behind the scenes and just clocking up those hours. We don't talk about that enough. We don't. And I think part of it is the world we're in that we discover somebody, but we don't know how long they've been doing what they've been doing. And it's very typical as well, say, for instance, in startups, when we come to use the app as a mainstream app, it's been in existence for three to four years. And the founders have been behind the scenes grinding, nearly going bankrupt or closing up their business or whatever before we actually see it. And then we see it and it's this big, massive thing. And then we think that's how it's meant to work. But actually, it's a series, I guess, of sowing and reaping, if, if I can use that as an analogy. Absolutely. It's the reason why this exists, because I just can't deal with that shiny, glossy success story, because it always has the work behind it. And people want the success, but they don't want to put the work in. So I think She Cancer did exist to kind of be that slap around the face that you need to put the work in. But you mentioned the Sky interview there, and you have had such incredible, worthy press. How did you go about gaining it? Was it quite organic in terms of putting yourself out there when you're being interviewed by Sky? Was that a comfortable experience? You know, all of those different things. I think it forces you as a business owner to wear so, so many hats. What was that experience like for you? So doing 
press stuff is not something necessarily new to me. Remember I said I had a venture before. So with that, I'd done some BBC radio stuff. I'd had some written PR before, but I hadn't done TV before. So it was very exciting and it was really an amazing opportunity, all very organic. And again, goes back to the point that actually not everything can be engineered because I couldn't have engineered the events that led up to that interview. But it's a matter of trusting your founder instinct. You know, that niggling little thing that just goes, go do X, Y, Z. And it's so subtle and it's so quiet. And you go like, really? Yeah. That thing that you think, it sounds ridiculous. So for me, it was like prep a launch on this day, line the launch with X, Y, Z. And the first thing that comes to my mind when that happens is like, oh God, there's so much work to do <laughs> to get that to happen. Yeah. And there's this and there's that. And then I start building roadblocks. But whenever you hear that and you go in the opposite direction of your fears, that's your winning streak. You won't know it at the time and it doesn't look like it at the time, but that's what it is. So for me, the interview was really great. It was kind of funny because I went on there. I was kind of expecting it because... Somebody did a spoof of like what happens when, you know, there's this delay that happens when people are being interviewed. And I was kind of half expecting it. And then when they logged me on, because we connected via Zoom, I was kind of having difficulties hearing them anyway. So I just knew something was going to happen. So I logged on and I got connected. And then she asked me a question and I didn't hear the question. And oh my, my question was like, can you repeat yourself? which I think in hindsight was quite funny, but I was kind of expecting it would happen. So yeah, and I just didn't know how the interview would go. Doing press, especially live press, is always interesting because sometimes you're thinking the story is coming from a different angle and they're trying to angle something else. And then you can end up looking quite bad. Mm -hmm. I did not in that interview, but Yeah, it's just, it's an interesting experience and you have to take it as it comes. Yeah, definitely. Bad in what way though? So I'll give you an example of one that happened. So I, and that wasn't to do with Blackface, but I was going on this radio interview thinking I was talking about a topic. And then I didn't know there was going to be another guest with an opposite view. So basically the person turned it into a debate. And one thing I'm always very conscious of is playing to the stereotype of the angry black woman, Mm. right? So I felt like that situation became that. I wasn't impolite or anything, but it's just like on reflection, on hindsight, they'd set me up to do that. Yeah. So you kind of always go in with a, okay, especially in the space that the app sits in, it's a very sensitive topic about race around race equality and all that type of stuff. So conversations can go left quite quickly, which is not necessarily what you're always trying to do. There are people that will have alternative views, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, whilst it's different in so many ways with a female founded platform, you know, the misogyny that you have to put up with when you say that you're supporting women doesn't mean that you're anti-men in any way. Yeah. (laughs) Make it that way. So yeah, whilst it's different, I can definitely see that when you are responsible for a platform like that, you are putting yourself in the firing line because you're not going to please everyone. Oh yeah. And and that happens. So 
people are free to go to my pinned tweet on my personal Twitter and the Sky News interview is still there. So the comments are all there that people were saying and you can almost preempt what the conversation and the comments were. And I launched on Black Pound Day to give it more context. And that was the very first Black Pound Day, right? So something that had never been done and people had all sorts of objections. But that's the stuff that comes. And I don't know who these people are and don't even want to know them. But at the end of the day, when you put yourself out there, that's some of the stuff that can come along with that. But you have to look at, okay, for example, I had 310,000 views. And of those views, let's just say for argument's sake, 2,000 comments were really horrible. Well, actually, that's just a small fraction of the people that have looked at this. Mm. that have something negative to say and the rest of the people either are indifferent or actually have shared and helped perpetuate the message so absolutely and I think it's interesting though I'm going to roll with this because it's still hard to overlook the 2000 and they're sometimes the painful ones so how do you go about as a founder dealing with that side of being a business owner you know and that kind of reality that you won't always please people And there will sometimes be 2,000 comments that aren't, even though there's 300,000 wholly in support and rooting for you, how do you not let that affect you? So I think this is slightly different to your average troll. So a lot of them, I believe, were quite ignorant comments. So it's not my job to educate ignorant people. It's just not. So initially, I wasn't going to read the comments. And then I read them to see what was being said and then I just went well okay if if that's what you believe like I even had people dm me I'm just like I don't even have time to respond to you it's not even worthy of a response because it's not even genuine to begin with so I think it's it's slightly easier to dismiss let's move on to the challenges that you've faced along the way I'm really interested to know what the hardest part about this whole journey has been for you and how you have dealt with it, or if you're in the process of dealing with it, how you're going about doing so. Okay, so I think two things kind of come to mind, Um, maybe three. Yeah, so three things. So first one, maybe if I talk about feedback, right? So in the very, very beginning, most people were like, oh yeah, this is a great idea and they were okay to come on. Then I'd have, I think off the top of my head, only three conversations stick out, maybe three or four, maybe there's even more, (laughs) but only a few conversations stick out where people have given feedback that isn't necessarily as positive. And then I guess for me, it was having to filter that feedback and still get what point they're trying to make. So for instance, feedback might have been around the UI, the user interface, the look and feel of the app. And somebody will have given a comment very early, early stages that they didn't like how it looked and felt. So then my job was to go and make it look better, right? And it's what's led to all these iterations. Or somebody might go like, this doesn't make sense as a flow to them. And then I have to go like, actually, 
it made sense for me when I designed it. But actually, when somebody that doesn't know anything about this comes in for the first time, if they don't understand how to use it, then I have to make it easy for them to understand. So I always have to remove myself out of the equation, remove the ego and try and understand what the feedback is behind. So feedback, really important and something that I always use to drive myself going forward. And yeah, you kind of have to get over yourself a bit. Mm. So that's one thing. Another thing might be like growth, whether it be growth in the number of signups or growth in the number of transactions. It's just understanding that actually in my head, obviously the ideal situation is to launch and blow up. But that's not how things that's work. Everyone's dream, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're talking to me the day after the launch. I'm like, we can all relate. <laughs> I think we also do this to ourselves. So there's a lot of good in what do you call it? Social social proof. Mm-hmm. In social proof. But you have no idea how long that social proof has taken to collate. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So for instance, somebody might show you all their sales that they've made. But you don't know if these are sales from day one or these are sales from this week. They might make them seem as their sales from, do you know what I mean? So people are constantly creating perceptions and realities that aren't necessarily the same. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, I was interviewing someone this morning and she said that in terms of that comparison online, so easy to see someone, you know, when they're saying, oh, I've um, Fifty thousand pounds this month, and you think, yeah, good for you, but that's them. And like, you just have to, as long as you know where you're going and what your goal is, you just have to put the blinkers on, yeah, and just believe that you can get to your goal. And everyone else, you just don't know the reality behind those numbers. Exactly. And you take those numbers with a pinch of salt. And if they're earning that, incredible, good for them. If not, you just let them do their thing, and you focus. And, and say, for instance, say in physical products, even if somebody shows you social proof, you don't know if that product has been gifted to that person that they're now social proofing. Do you see what I mean? So the only reality you have is yours, which is, okay, this is what I'm able to do. So if I've done X, Y, Z and got this amount of effort going back to sowing and reaping, then if I keep on doing X, Y, Z, or get this result and you just focus as you say on being blinkered and doing what you're supposed to be doing and I guess the last thing I guess is around like motivation because we talked I'm on furlough so being at home it's not something I love working from home but it's not a particular situation that we all experience I've got kids so my kids my youngest has been around quite a lot so it's not necessarily the most conducive environment to work in it's great I loved it in the beginning but I think when you really want to be productive sometimes it's not always productive and there are times where I guess the good thing about working for yourself is you have the flexibility to work when you're productive and not work when you're not feeling so productive so when I'm feeling really productive I really work and I just do everything that I can because I know that after a while I might have a slump and then not feel like working and just feel like watching trash TV. So then I watch trash TV. And I do admire a lot of people that go, I work up at six, I have a routine, and et cetera, et cetera. 
And I think, again, going back to that, if that's not you, it's not you. Don't try and be something that you're not because your body, your mind are constantly telling you of how you're meant to work and how you're supposed to do things. So if you're not listening to that, and there's different schools of thoughts around discipline and all that, but I think you just have to understand who you are and what you're capable of Mm. and not try and be somebody else. I'm not saying that people should be watching Netflix all the time, although I do it sometimes, <laughs> but only sometimes. Yeah. Because I get the impression, and I think it's the wrong impression, that people think like, you've got to work 24-7, otherwise this is not going to happen. And I just don't, I'm not sure I buy into that. A lot of people get burnout, right? So they might be working now getting really great results, but six months down the line, are they going to be optimum? Your mind is such a fragile thing that I think that it doesn't take a lot for you to get into a bad state mentally. And if you're not there and then nobody's working in your business, what has that achieved? So just taking care of yourself and understanding how you work at your optimum, I think is a really important thing. Mm, it's so true. And just like, I think listening to your body, like you said, you know, you see people doing X, Y, Z, it really doesn't mean that you have to, or even, you know, as an example, personally, I am a morning person, I I get up and I do have my little workout routine. But the past couple of months, I used to run really regularly, it was my go to switch off always. And I have not had the energy, I'd go out on a run with my sister, and I'd just wouldn't be able to run because up here was knackered I was so tired up in my head yeah and it's completely made the switch recently to doing yoga and pilates and just nothing cardio based where my heart's pounding I'm just doing what I got to do to get through this bit and when I need to run again I'll start running exactly and I'm very much like that like last two weeks I was doing a challenge and I was really enjoying it, but it's really hard. And so when when you feel like your body can't do another, like, I just can't do it today, <laughs> maybe you should listen. I think we take for granted how we're wired. Do you know what I mean? Because what does it take for you to then stop? Does it take for you to collapse in the road or something? Yeah. For you to know, actually, that was your body telling you to just give me a break. Yeah, no, I think like listening to your head, your body, or when you're aching, all of that, like you just got to just give yourself a break, I think. Yeah. Let's let's talk about Black Lives Matter, the protest, you know, in June and everything that's followed. What impact has that had on firstly you as a business owner and blackface as well? So I think the whole situation was very sad, but like a lot of people I feel like it's what really made the difference, which is sad in itself. So when I started the app, the dialogue with people around buying Black-owned brands was quite different. And I had this list that there were certain things that needed to happen. And in my head, it was me that had to make them happen, but I didn't know how I was going to do it. Which is why I think it's not always about you planning and prepping things. Sometimes it's about being prepared. So I had this list of things and just Black Pride was one of the things that was on there because the dialogue that I was having, people were kind of skeptical about brands or whatever. And so when that happened, it shifted people's thinking in a huge way that I hadn't seen and wasn't seeing. So the app signups shot up. People spreading the word shut up. 
whether it be retweets, Instagram shares and all that. So it made a huge difference, although it was a sad event. But then again, I don't think really big change ever happens voluntarily, if that makes sense, because the whole reason that things are set up a certain way is they're benefiting someone, right? And so those people are never going to wield the power that they have to equalize things freely. Otherwise, they would have done it ages ago. So sometimes it takes a bit more fight. But yeah. But the thing, like we were saying earlier, with COVID in 2020, I've had so many discussions since June that have basically said, you know, how because of lockdown, as a white person, there was nowhere to escape from that. We were in lockdown and that news dominated, rightly so. And we were confronted with the reality and we couldn't hide from it and escape it or push it and scapegoat. It was a case of we're in lockdown. This is the situation and we had to sit with it and accept it. And either you obviously had a lot of people resist it and then you had others say we need to do better. And I think that when it goes back to COVID and 2020, massive learning like a whole learning. And like we said earlier, there's always going to be ignorant people that were not willing to change. But I think for so many brand owners, it was a much needed, welcomed wake up call to do better. Yeah, I would definitely agree. And I saw the impact that you're talking about. So when Blackface was set up, I had a person like me as my sort of target audience. But through that period, the audience got more diverse. So white women were sharing the app, which is really incredible because it's like, okay, and people are supporting the brand. So to me, that was a great thing that came out of it, but it kind of took that for that to happen, which nobody could have engineered. Mm. So yeah, tragic. Absolutely. Going forward, where do you see this brand going and where do you want it to go? What's your vision? So my vision is to, and part of that is kind of happening, to do something in retail. I've got something in the pipeline for that. And then to also just do more experiential stuff using technology. So where we're moving to, we don't know what a post-COVID world looks like. So how can technology help retail in that type of space? And also just continuing to diversify and not just stay as a brand that's just for Black women, which I think we've already come across that. It's how I started, but how do I then go into different spaces and interact and include other people within this? Because like nail polish doesn't necessarily have to be for Black women. Mm -hmm. Right. So how do I take that and go forward into that more inclusive space? So those are all things that I'll be thinking of. But how I've learned to work is to just look out for what the open doors are as opposed to strictly plan. Just look at where things are working without too much effort, if that makes sense. Like I'm not forcing things. People are welcoming and then I move into that direction. And it might be work in that space for a period of time. So I think I'll still be having impact doing that in the same way that somebody strictly planning to do X, Y, Z will have. So I have a set plan and then I have a fluid plan, if that makes sense. 
yeah absolutely that's the thing though I think you just like we were saying before the mics went on just have to roll with it yeah and it's just adapting and tweaking and pivoting and seeing where you end up and I think if we even look right now at huge brands that we know there's huge fast fashion brands that people have questioned why they haven't moved into retail there's huge say for instance cinema brands that we've questioned why didn't they make the most of maybe pivoting to I don't know, some home or drive-through cinema experience and stuff like that. It's because you don't have that fluid plan. You only have that long-term strict plan. And the minute something else that's outside of those normal conditions happen, you don't know what to do or you don't have enough time to be agile and respond to that. So I think it's really important to understand. It's an important lesson, again, in business that it's not always about that written down business plan. Sometimes that might not even work. Mm -hmm. So if that doesn't work, what else are you going to do? Absolutely. Okay, to round up then, I always end with some quickfire statements. So let's go for it. Being my own boss means... Uh, working flexibly I think that's the most important absolutely when it's not quite going to plan my advice would be to keep going Mm. if I could describe myself as a businesswoman I'd say that I am tenacious absolutely anything else uh I'd say I'm personable good at building relationships yeah I can I can get that that's good if I could go back to day one of my business I'd tell myself how you think it's going to work is not how it's going to work. <laughs> oh, so true. And very lastly, I want my legacy to be that. that I made an impact and actually people's lives changed and I helped to do that. I have a feeling that you are very much will and are doing that. So yeah, thank you so much, Benedicta. I love that chat. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to that episode. If you have a minute to spare and enjoyed it, of course, it would mean so much to me if you could please rate the podcast below or leave a review if you fancy being extra kind, as apparently it helps to give the series a little boost and helps other female founders and aspiring business owners to find it. For now, though, enjoy the rest of your day and please do look out for next week's episode. (music)